Welcome back to our trying pod. It has been a long ass time. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing good, man. I'm so out of practice that I um, forgot to plug my microphone into my computer. So when my audio gets a lot better in like four seconds, that's because my microphone will be plugged in. Yeah, let's just keep it this way. Let's roll with this. Uh, Guys, we're recording this the week before the Super Bowl where my beloved Philadelphia Eagles will take down Nick's adopted Kansas City Chiefs. I mean, how do you feel about that statement? Um, Well, unfortunately, the dig about my loyalty to the Chiefs being not lifelong is a true statement. But, I, you know, honestly, I wanted us to beat the Bengals so bad. I was just so afraid we're going to lose the Bengals again. So I'm like, not frankly as emotionally invested in the Super Bowl, which is a weird thing to say because getting the Super Bowl is so hard. And if Mahomes wins two in five years, he's like on the Brady track, right? Will he get there? Who knows? But that's a pretty major narrative. So we'll see. It's hard, dude, because the Eagles can't choose their own opponents. So it's just hard to know how good they are. Like they could steamroll the Chiefs and I wouldn't be surprised. I also wouldn't be that surprised if we beat them pretty easily. But it's just, you know, the best quarterback eagles played was like jared goff so it's just hard to know how good they really are it really is true the afc is so much stronger than the nfc this year and the eagles have just i mean they've the teams they've played have just been injury ridden it's been the new york giants that said i mean they're on paper they're a great team so i'm just hoping it's a wonderful game for me personally it's it's tough i love andy reed andy reed was the coach of the eagles of my youth he was your daddy you called was, him daddy. I, I did. I did. I mean, he took us to the Super Bowl. He took us to the NFC Championship, I think, four times. Uh, before that, we were like 5 and 12 or 5 and 11, I guess it would be. And then, yeah, I mean, I like Mahomes. I mean, a couple of years ago, right, it's Brady. So it's like, take that mofo Oh, down. of course. America was rooting for Nick Foles in the Philly special. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Kelsey brother thing is kind of cute. And just, yeah, I guess Andy Reid, man, I, I, I want to beat him. Uh, but if we lose in a nail biter where we're not humiliated, I'll still hate it, but it won't be, it wouldn't be like losing to Brady like we did, like it was in 2004. Yeah. Uh, that's good, man. Well, it's a great week in America and it's a great week in America because we're doing the 39 articles for season three of OTP. Yeah, guys, if you remember, I mean, it's been a long time. We announced this, like we were going to start it the next week like three months ago but i think like five months ago yeah is it really that long yeah and to you faithful listeners out there who have messaged us on our our trying pod instagram messaged nick messaged me about how you guys can't come to an end thank you because nick was gonna tap out but thanks to your pestering he is back so Let's talk about the 39 Articles of Religion before we jump into the very first one. I don't want to make this very long, but you got to give it some background. We are talking about a document that was put together in the 16th century. This is pre-modern Reformation times. This is in England. It's a document of the Church of England. The 39 Articles went through a lot of revisions, five in fact. And in fact, the 39 Articles we have today were finalized in 1571. At first, there were 10 articles, and there were six, 42, settled on 39. And over the course of the decades where these articles were being edited, uh, they went from being slightly Protestant to Catholic to being very Roman Catholic to doing about face and becoming pretty Reformed 
to the 39 articles today that we're going to analyze and not tell you exactly what they're like just yet. But we want to approach the 39 articles in an ironic spirit. If you've read about 39 articles, you've probably heard either Anglo-Catholics talk about how they're actually the most Catholic thing imaginable, and then you've heard puritanical reformational Anglicans say, no, this is, you know, the most Protestant document imaginable. But all clergy had to subscribe to the Ferdinand Articles with the Act of Parliament during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. So when you hear people say, oh, the Ferdinand Articles, they were from the beginning, kind of this thing you could pick or choose that's not true, at least. And, and, you know, this will get us into articles in the future where we'll have problems is, you know, this was top down. This was a, the government onto the church. No, you will subscribe to this. We're going to save those church state issues for another day. So this is the doctrinal position of the Church of England in the 16th century. And I guess on the books in the Church of England, it still is today. Now, in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, uh, it gets a little fuzzy, and maybe we'll discuss that in future episodes. But nevertheless, this historical document has to be taken seriously. We cannot pretend like it has no influence on us today. And I think that is why you have very good Anglo-Catholics, very good J.I. Packer Puritans, and all the people in between who want to claim the Fernando Articles as their own and take it seriously. Nick, anything you want to add before I continue? Great, great summary. Do you, uh, I mean, do you feel like, regardless of their compulsory nature or not, do you have a, do you, would you say that 39 articles reflect your deepest convictions around the truth expressed in the Bible? Like, does the 39 articles in your mind accurately, not maybe not exhaustively, but like, I guess what I'm asking is, do you believe everything that's in there? Oh, I cut into the, to the chase. Um, I take them very seriously, and I want to want to be very close to them. I think that in our ironic spirit, in our conversational style, we will at times find articles that maybe we wish would have been worded differently. Maybe we aren't sure apply in our 21st century American lives. But that said, I, I want to approach it from a position of charity uh, and on some level feel Someone bound to them. I mean, obviously, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a good Protestant. Scripture over oh yeah, of course, articles. of course, right. The but there's a big difference. Never a creed, uh, but mm. yeah, I we'll see. Maybe my answer is we'll see. What about you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> frankly, I I'm sure there's some articles that I just have never really thought that much about before. That I'm like, I don't know about that. But and whether you ultimately believe something and can you know whether you believe something, that's not really what I'm saying, I suppose. But I guess there's a difference between reading a article, some kind of confession of faith and saying, man, that's awesome. Versus, uh, I definitely don't think that's true. And I couldn't say that in good faith, like as my confession, as it were. Um, and I, I'm thinking more of the former, like, are there things in there that you immediately read and think, nope. Um, versus, do I believe this? Who knows? You know. But well, I guess we'll get to that. I mean, like article one, I think we would both say, yeah, that seems right. But um, yeah. maybe some of the actually, later we'll kind of maybe articles. answer some of that in our article today. Because I mean, so these first five articles are on the Trinity 
and the incarnation. Essentially, I mean, this is primitive gospel, right? Christians believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians believe in the fa- in the dual nature of Christ, that Jesus is fully God, fully human. It's really hard to disagree with these. That said, we can take issue with how they're presented, or we can take issue with the philosophical framework of the time. I'm not going to take issue. I'm just going to essentially say there might be you know, our, our current milieu might have better ways of describing these things for contemporaries. Maybe not. Uh, but so let's start. Off. The, the first two articles that we're going to look at were largely stolen from the Augsburg Confession. That's the Lutheran Confession. So the Thurnan Articles is sort of a confession of sorts. And there are all kinds of confessions being written during these early days of the Reformation. What I think makes the Thurnian Articles distinctive is that in these first five articles, the controversial matters like justification by grace through faith, which I fullheartedly endorse and believe, this isn't put first. No, what's put first is the Trinity. What's put first is the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully human. This is not to say that justification by faith wasn't very important to Thomas Cranmer and others who assembled these articles. But unlike the Westminster Confession of Faith, unlike the Church of Ireland articles, Thomas Cranmer and his friends said that we begin with God before theological method. We begin with the oneness of God, the transcendence of God, even before we start talking about Jesus, which is very different than the way 20th century and 21st century theology talks about God. A whole lot of the time in 21st century theology, we start with Jesus and then move on to God. And there were people in the 16th century who did this. Zwingli did this. He began with Jesus and moved back to God. And maybe that's why Zwingli's had a renaissance today. But here, let's begin article number one. And uh, so article one is titled A Faith in the Holy Trinity. And it goes like this. There is but one living and true God everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And and in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Article one begins with the unity and the transcendence of God. It begins with God before it begins with Jesus, and it uses language that we don't necessarily find in Scripture. Not that it's opposed to Scripture, but it's the language of Platonism. It's the like, milieu. Like what, what, give me an example, like the without body. Do you think that like are yeah, without, without body, parts, passions? This yeah. these are the language of the Stoics, language of the Platonists. Uh, but again, it's like it, it would be the same way. This is where it's very missionary, right? It's the same way today if you're going to a foreign country or even if you know, 21st century America, we want to translate theology in a way that people can hear it today, not to lose mm-hmm. its uh, substance. But I mean, we're all about translation as Christians. Oh, right? yeah. What makes us different. Yeah. Than like it's almost um, it's it's almost unimaginable for me to. Like I think the, the example I think about all the time, and this is not a criticism. I use this word all the time. Is like flourishing. 
It's like, there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's like no, that's, that, that's not even like loosely related to a literal biblical word, but it's almost impossible to imagine how to talk about what it means to be a Christian if and not use a word like flourishing, <laughs> you know? So it's just to your point, like, it's not about losing contact with scripture. It's just about trying to speak in terms that people can latch onto and yeah. meaningfully interact with. And I think they're trying to take the old Testament and especially the prophets very seriously in the prophets. God is very much one. God has no rival. So when the Platonic philosophers talk about how like we don't like the crude anthropomorphic ideas of God, uh, early Christians latched onto this. And that's why, again, yeah, you have those, that weird language. God is without body, parts, or passions. Uh, I mean, let, let, let's, let's start with everlasting because, I mean, we say there is but one living and true God everlasting. Um, The world's full of things that come to an end. God does not come to an end. Bodies. The world is full of things that are limited by their bodies. God is without body parts or passions. And and the key word here is, we see, is infinite. It's infinite, not finite. We put bounds on God, but they must be removed. So early on in this very first article, we are highlighting the mystery of God. God is other what do you want to say can i can i ask kind of a dumb question um i think i know the answer to this but maybe not when it creates uh what's when the creed when the article says without body comma parts comma or passions by parts the the authors do not mean like an appendage like an arm rather than I, this is i guess i'm stating this as a fact it's i'm actually asking as a question it really means more like god isn't like one part love and one part justice, and another part kindness, and another part righteousness. He's like a a, a whole. Is that is that correct? Yeah, I, I think that's more connected with God is without body. Um, from what I read, with God is without parts, is that he? No, I mean, I guess you're you're probably right. Again, this is like this is not our milieu. This is not the language we use. But Oliver O'Donovan says that it's that God is not susceptible to dissolution. The way that we are, he we, we are composed oh. of historical composition. God is not. Now you might be wondering, like, why this language? Like, why do we care about that? Like, really, what matters is that Jesus died for my sins. Uh, the incarnation, God became one of us. And now, of course, we'll, we'll we'll get to that eventually. But what this first article really is doing is it's trying to safeguard the transcendence of God because if God is merely imminent, if God is merely one who suffers with us, well, millions of our fellow human beings suffer, and they suffer in similar ways the way Jesus did on the cross. But the fact that the impassable one, the one without body or parts, the one who uh, does not change, the one who has no rival, the one who is Lord over death itself, died for us on our behalf, and has conquered it, was raised because he is infinite. Does that make sense? Like keeping, you got to hold the two sides of the same coin together. And I think a lot of 20th century theology really wants to emphasize that, well, God suffered with us and with these ancients and what these reformers want to say is, yes, God and Jesus suffered with us. But if that's all of the good news, well, then it's not very good. We need this transcendent God who is not going to be moved to not love us or or can be defeated by something. 
Right. Or that even in some sense needs us to be complete, but that it's in it. Yeah. I think we're going to use the word paradox in a minute here. So just to bring it up now, there is a, that's a paradoxical thing, I suppose. And I would be, I would have a hard time like in a, in a cool rational sense, trying to articulate how those two things cohere, but it does seem like the Bible is as a if you look at it as a whole is playing with this paradox of God is completely other he has no body or parts or passions, but God had a body and parts and passions in Christ. And and the shock of the incarnation gets lost if you just think of it as like, and I say this, I use this language all the time, but it's like, yeah, Jesus is like the most perfect person who ever lived. And part of what makes that so astounding is that he's like a God without body parts or passions. How that all works, I guess, well, I'm an eternity to figure that out. But yeah, it's wild. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it what it's what makes the gospel work. If I died, if if I'm like William Wallace and I die for Scotland uh, and I suffer alongside Scotland, I do all these great things. It's, I mean, it it's very inspiring. And maybe it affects people to follow suit. But we're, what we're saying is there is. I mean, I guess this gets to what we'll get to later. Like a tri- uh, the atonement is happening, and it yeah. only can happen because. The helpless babe is almighty God, mm. is the one who, despite the fact that God is one of us, just a slob like one of us. Um, uh, the, the, <laughs> We're just playing all the 90s hit. that song. <laughs> you know, we got Braveheart, um, we got Joan Osborne. It's dope. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think it can't hold them down. It's just very hard to, and I, I'm not, this isn't me pushing back on the creed in any kind of like legitimate sense it's just this reflecting practically about like where people are at not like even like a professional theologians but like where most people are at it's like and i would count myself like this it's so hard to think metaphysically like that you know like it's so hard to really wrap try to like that feels like i'm trying to read russian it's like my brain just doesn't compute the way that god is not just the highest order of creation but it is this wholly other thing to your point about milieus, that just feels like it's completely outside the bounds of how we tend to imagine and think about how this stuff works. But it probably was to that question different. you asked earlier about, I mean, I, I think we need to keep these articles close at hand, but more so than that. Like, so this is, if this is, if there's a word for this kind of theology, it's the via negativa. And we're, we're using all these negatives to talk about God to highlight the mystery of God, to highlight that he is other than us yeah. uh, in order to, to hold fast to his imminence, right? <laughs> like that, you know, that he could rise from the dead, that his death really mattered. And if, if these seemingly foreign philosophical terms, if we can use them to translate and understand the, the gospel, then we probably can use terms that work in our own day, in our own milieu, uh, in fear and trembling, right? Because we want to highlight the Trinity and the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully human. So are we frozen in time with these terms? I don't know, but I think we kind of gauge the way we talk about God by the way the giants before us talked about God. So it's, yeah, do do I affirm this article? Yes. Do I feel like this is the only way to talk about it? No. I, I mean, are there? I mean, I, I don't tend to be a big um, uh, God suffered Moltmann kind of guy. But, you know, 
I don't think that Jurgen Moltmann and these people who talk about this, we should just throw out because they're they're wrestling with how do we talk about this to contemporaries after the Holocaust, after these horrible things. And I think that's that's valid. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good way to think about what this creed is. The question this creed forces on us is how do we talk about G-O-D in our moment, right? And the way that the creed talks about it is biblical and it's conceptually rich, but is difficult to truly wrap your mind around. And maybe there's not much more to say than that. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, uh, um, but it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's not valid or, and the strangeness of it is probably an invitation to really consider it deeper rather than just cast it aside as an historical artifact. Yeah. And I think what they're trying to do, believe it or not, even though we're not using biblical language, is to take the whole Bible seriously. Mm. Not just your favorite passage, not just my favorite passage, uh, but God is one, God is other. At the same time, God is closer than a brother. He's taken on all the temptations and the sufferings that we deal with. And even though we like our kind of binary thinking, holding all these things together about God. Yeah, that's great. That's a great note to end on. Why don't you read it one last time? All right. Article number one of faith in the Holy Trinity. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.